in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 978. By the way, I didn't really mention during announcement time, but on Friday, we obviously, it's in the bulletin, we'll do a Good Friday service. Um, I'm a big fan of that. Uh, First part of my life, I grew up Lutheran, and they did a very uh, somber Good Friday service. And uh, then when my family went Baptist, uh, we got a lot of good things there, but what we didn't get was a somber Good Friday service. Uh, In my Baptist tradition, you celebrated on Palm Sunday. Next Sunday, you celebrated resurrection, but you never went through the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus went through the valley of the shadow of death so that we could celebrate resurrection and new life. So I think it makes it very meaningful uh, Resurrection Sunday becomes more meaningful when you've celebrated Good Friday. So if you're able to come, that'll be at 7 o'clock. All right, in Ephesians chapter 4, last week Paul turned the corner from addressing a Christian's behavior and responsibility within the church to a Christian's behavior and responsibility in the world and in society. And one of the reasons why he does this is so that we don't live like chameleons. Probably a lot of people here, including me, would bear witness to the story or have the testimony. There were some years of my life where I, I played one tune on a Sunday. Uh, I, li- I acted one way on a Sunday, and I lived a different way when I was with my friends. And the two were not compatible. And I was a chameleon. I could blend in very well. I've, I've never not been in church. I could blend in very well with everything that was religious. But then uh, with my friends, I talked a different way. And I lived a different way. And Paul doesn't want that to happen. Uh, Especially given that he's writing mostly to Christians who came out of a very pagan lifestyle. And they live in a very pagan culture. And he wants them to know that when you gather on the Lord's Day to celebrate the gospel... Being a Christian doesn't just mean it changes a Sunday, it changes every day. And so he's going to address their responsibility in the world and in society. Now, in talking about these things, I want to make it very clear. He is not telling them this is what makes you a Christian. There is nothing you can do on your own that makes you a Christian. The first three chapters are what God has done in Christ. That's what makes you a Christian. If your sins are forgiven, it's because of what God did, not because of what I did. Not because of what you could do. So, in Ephesians chapter 2, I read these verses again last week. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. And guess what? It's not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're not saved as a result of our good works. But friend, if God has saved you, he saved you for good works. It is to make a difference. And those good works God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now Paul is communicating to the church. Here's how you walk in those good works when you go out into the world. Here's how you walk in America, because America is not the same as the kingdom of God. 
And Paul's saying, stop living like an American, stop living like Gentiles, and start living like you belong to the kingdom of God. Here's how you walk. Last Sunday, we did verses 17 to 19. And briefly, they look like this. Now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Uh, one of the themes in Ephesians is this idea of how you walk. So he's telling them, don't walk like the Gentiles. Well, the question is, how did the Gentiles walk? If I'm not to walk like them, if I'm, if I'm not to live like an ordinary American, a product of our, of our culture and our society... How did they walk? The answer is, well, they walked in the futility of their minds, which is the word vanity. They were striving after the wind. All the things that they pursue is most important. It's a striving after the wind. It's vanity. It's pointless. It will never satisfy. It will never give you significance or meaning. And on some level, and this is a point I meant to make last week and I didn't, so I'm going to make it now. On some level, I think probably we could all point to certain individuals in America that seem very successful, very accomplished. They've achieved their, their greatest ambitions, the most noble things they could possibly dream of. And maybe, that, maybe you've bought into that and you're, you're striving for your dreams, whether it's some achievement intellectually or physically or some status or, or accumulate wealth. And Jesus said, this is what I meant to say last week, Jesus said, what does it profit if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? So what if you make it to whatever, whatever you're reaching for? You've striven after, striving after the wind if the gospel isn't central to your life, if Christ isn't Lord of all. So we have a series of why questions. Why did they strive after these things that really don't matter? And Paul answers, well, having been darkened in their understanding. They strive after things that really don't matter because their understanding has been darkened. And then the question is, well, why is their understanding darkened? And the answer is, well, having been alienated from the life of God. If you're alienated from the life of God, in whom is light... You will be in darkness. You know, for a time when we were living on the farm outside of Lincoln, there was a time where Cindy and I, our family, such as it was, a work in progress, but we attended the Free Methodist Church. And the Free Methodist Church, their denominational magazine was called Light and Life. It's a great name. Because light and life belong in God. They are it's part of God's essential nature. Light and life. And if I am to have life, if I am to walk in light, it must come from God. But they've been alienated in their understanding, and they've been alienated from the life of God. Well, why are they alienated from the life of God? Well, because of the ignorance that is in them. They're alienated because of their ignorance, which sounds almost benign until you ask the next why. Why are they ignorant? And Paul's answer is because of their hardness of heart. They're not ignorant because God has not revealed his character to them. They're ignorant because of their hardness of heart. Now, they didn't get the scriptures like Israel did, Gentiles. But they've got all of creation bearing witness to God's power and wisdom and might. And they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. We talked about all that last week, so I won't belabor the point. All this 
with what outcome? The outcome of this scenario is, verse 19, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Friends, that's how relevant the Bible is. It's what I read about in America every day, if I choose to. America is, is on the highway to hell. And they can't get there quick enough. And barring the grace of God and a, a miraculous intervention of revival, it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. Because in our culture, they are greedy for every kind of immorality. But in sharp contrast, Paul outlines how Christians ought to live because he says, this isn't the way you learned Christ. Don't be like Gentiles. Don't blend in with your culture. You know, Cindy grew up in a, only a Baptist tradition. It was a very big B Baptist. It wasn't entirely bad, but it was very legalistic and, and all that kind of stuff. But there was one story that she told about a revivalist that came there that made a really good point. And he talked about not, being, not living like the world. And he said, sometimes Christians have the mentality that they'll be arm's length away from the world. And that's good, because they're not like the world. They're arm's length away. But the world is going that direction. And so if I'm always arm's length away, yeah, I've distinguished myself. I'm not like them, but I'm not moving the right direction. Because the world is getting, our culture is getting more immoral, more openly immoral. And so my standard not, should not be the world. It should be Christ. I am to be like Christ. So our verses today look like this. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, now, in those verses... The first big theme that you should recognize is a theme of education, because Paul is talking in terms of, he's using uh, an analogy or a word picture that plays on the idea of learning and being educated, being schooled. This is the school of the gospel. He says things like learning Christ, hearing about him, being taught in him, all images regarding to education and schooling. And so we'll break this down. He starts off, that is not the way you learned Christ, which is an interesting way to put it, because typically when you go to school, you're learning a subject, you're learning a language, you're learning a skill, you're learning some ability. But in this case, he's talking about learning a person. Because ultimately, the gospel and Christianity is not a way to live a moral life it's about being in relationship with a person. And if you've removed the person from the kingdom of God, if you've removed the person from Scripture, you're missing the point. Which kind of goes back to a famous thing that Jesus said. I looked at it last week as well. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm not, I'm not telling you follow that path. I'm telling you be in relationship with me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. You will not find meaning to life. You can't bring it into your life by yourself. I define you because you're created in the image of God. 
And unless that image, image is restored, you will be grasping, looking for meaning in many different ways, some of which are cultural, some of which are your own ideas, and you will always come up empty because Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There's a, one of my favorite books is Classic Christianity. I meant to put a couple extra copies on the back table today, but I forgot. But in Classic Christianity, uh, written by Bob George, I've given away more of these books than any book I've ever given away, so I usually keep at least one copy on the back foyer counter. And I started rereading it recently, uh, every once in a while. I haven't read it just once. Every once in a while I reread it. And there's something that jumped out in this reading that actually I found very convicting. It's quite a ways into the book, and Bob George was a Christian counselor uh, from Dallas, Texas. He had a radio show called People to People, uh, call-in radio show. Uh, I called in once. It was kind of interesting. And and, uh, any rate, in the book he says this. As I looked back over my Christian life, this illustration seemed to describe me. In those early days, I was like a brand new twig on the grapevine. I wasn't very big. I wasn't very mature. And I couldn't support much fruit, but I was totally full of the life of the vine. I was full of the love of Christ. Then I began to grow. But that growth was characterized by things like knowledge, experience, and more conformity to all the Christians around me. I was a bigger branch, apparently more mature, but the fruit still wasn't there. I became filled with knowledge instead of filled with Christ. Before in evangelistic opportunities, I may have been awkward, but I was overflowing with the love of Jesus and sharing out of genuine concern. But then I started sharing my knowledge, full of nifty illustrations and snappy comebacks, and I wondered where the power went. Once again, it seemed as if God was sending me a message, and here's the line that convicted me. You used to share me with people. Bob, now you share your knowledge. I found that pretty convicting. You know, what do I share with people? Do I share all that I've learned, all that I know? Or do I share out of the relationship I have with the resurrected Christ, the resurrected Lord? That's what, that's what the gospel is. It's entering into a relationship with Christ. You do grow in knowledge. You do grow in understanding. But I ought to share out of my relationship, not just what I think I've learned. So he says, that's not the way you've learned Christ, assuming that you've heard him. The word about is not there, which in almost every Bible translation it is there. A couple of Bible translations have uh, the preposition of. You've heard of him. You've heard about him. It's not there. What Paul said, that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard him. As if... He is not only the subject of our relationship, the subject of what we know. He's the teacher of what we know. He's the one who teaches us. On one hand, I think this could at least point back to the idea, because we're talking to the Ephesians. We're talking to Gentiles. They did not physically hear Jesus like uh, Peter, James, and John, or like the, the, the Jews living in the land of Israel, But they heard Jesus through the words of the apostles and prophets who who are the authorized representatives and spokespersons for the Lord Jesus Christ. So when they heard the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, we've seen that in Ephesians chapter 2, I think it's verse 20. 
And so when they heard the apostles and prophets teaching, they heard Jesus. I've heard Jesus because I've got God's scripture. I've got what the apostles and prophets wrote down, inspired by the Holy God. I've heard Jesus speak in the words of scripture. I think that's one great way to understand what it means to have heard him, but it's not the only way. Because I think this also could be referring to their call to salvation, which in John's gospel goes like this. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. I think those other sheep that are brought into the fold include Ephesians. I think they include Gentiles. I think they include Americans. I think it included me. And I'm a Christian today because I heard that voice. I heard that voice that called me to repentance and faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. And then thirdly, he says, not only have you learned Christ, not only is he the subject matter, not only is he the teacher, but you're taught in him. The whole the whole atmosphere of everything about what we are learning, it's all about him. But it's kind of interesting because I think that we're taught in him ought to be added with as the truth is in Jesus. As the truth is in Jesus. That is actually a highly unusual phrase because it's one of the handful of times that Paul ever writes It's the only time he writes it in Ephesians where he refers to Jesus without referring to him as Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus our Lord, the Lord Jesus. I could give you every example in Ephesians. In chapter 1 and verse 1 it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Jesus, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And it goes on from there. But this is an occasion where he only mentions the name of Jesus, not Christ, not Lord. I don't think it's by accident. I think he's meaning to draw our attention to something. And what I would suggest he means to draw our attention to is this Christ, this Messiah, this individual in whom are the plan, God's plan of salvation and redemption and judgment. Everything you're learning about God's plan of salvation and judgment, it's equated with Jesus. And so anybody in the world who thinks they know God, but they are not reconciled to Jesus, they don't know who Jesus is, they don't know God. Because all that God has purposed to do in salvation is revealed in that man. The eternal God became flesh and dwelled among us, full of grace and truth. Salvation is in a man. It's in that person. And so he's equating that. All of that. It's not just all this theology out there. It's a man. Jesus of Nazareth. He walked this earth. He lived and dwelt among us. He died on a cross and he rose the third day. You've got to know who the man is. 
What specifically were they taught? So it's got all this educational language. What were they taught? Three main things. Number one, they were taught to put off your old self. Number two, they were taught to be renewed in their mind, in the spirit of your minds. Commentators are a little bit divided over whether that spirit should be capitalized or not capitalized. A third group of commentators says, let's not split the difference. Let's say, in a sense, both are required. In other words, if I'm renewed in the spirit of my mind, it's because the spirit of God is working to renew my mind. And I think that would be true. So we're taught to put off, we're taught to be renewed, and then we're taught to put on the new self. Um, There we go. This is a hard passage, and I don't have time enough, and I, well, I don't want to take time enough to try to unpack all the possibilities and all the different ways people try to explain what exactly is going on here, or how we should take it, how we should apply it. Uh, it's, it would be complicated. There are entire books written on that. Uh, there's like viewpoint books. We're good Christians. We're not talking about what do unbelievers think. I'm talking about good people, Christians committed to the gospel. They will look at that and they will, they will say, the way we are to understand that, they will say, they look at it a little bit differently. Uh, I don't want to go through all that nuance. I'll just give you the right answer. <laughs> Actually, I'll just give you what, I, what I'm more persuaded is to be the right answer. But let me start with what I think everybody can agree on in, those book, in the, the book I have that has the different viewpoints, they would all agree that what is being communicated is becoming a Christian involves a radical transformation and entirely new identity. If Christianity for you is, is nothing more than walking down an aisle in some fundamentalist church or getting baptized in a tank or as a baby or observing the Lord's Supper... If it has no more meaning to you than that, and it it can't be described as a radical transformation, I'm not sure you understand the gospel. I pray it's just because you haven't, uh, you're not fully acquainted with what God has revealed in Scripture, and not because you really have deceived yourself that you've received the gospel. Because the gospel that required the Son of God to lay down his life, it is life changing. It is life changing. And it, is a, it puts you on a path that you've never been on before, and you never arrive at home until Christ's resurrection. Now, in some sense, if you're a believer and you die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but the job's not done until Christ comes back and that body that was laid in the grave is resurrected. Because God cares about physical bodies too, and they will be made new. And that job will get completed. So... That's the main idea everybody can agree on. Let me talk about what is, I think, a bad idea. Uh, This would be what I I disagree with, though it's something I grew up with, and you've probably heard it as well. It's the idea that that Christianity, being a Christian, is somewhat somewhat like uh, you're in the middle of the road here, and you've got uh, the old man speaking into your life to be selfish, uh, to do things for yourself, to disregard what God says is true. And then on the other hand, you've got the, the new man telling you, no, that's, you, know, you don't want to do that. You want to, walk, you want to be pleasing to Christ. Uh, you want to walk in obedience, and you're kind of caught between the two, and, and there's a battle, and you're in the middle. And some books describe it as like, well, 
how do you not give in to temptation? Or, or why is it that you, you do give in to temptation? And, and, and some preachers describe it as, well, it's like, it's like you've got a, two dogs, a black dog and a white dog, and whichever one you feed the most is the one that's going to win the day. Whichever one you listen to, whichever one you're feeding, whichever one you're encouraging, that's going to have the most influence over your life. That's a, a popular way to understand what Paul's writing about. I think it's completely wrong. For lots of reasons, most of which I don't have time to go into. It's partly wrong because now you've got three people. You've got the old man, you've got the new man, and then you're the neutral man in the middle trying to, to umpire or referee between the two. I don't think that's the image Paul means for us to take away from this. I would suggest to you the designations old man and new man are not synonymous with sin nature and new nature. You can't just replace the two. They're not the same. They're not the same. Uh, they're related. The old man is related to the sin nature. The new man is related to the new nature. And by the way, I'll probably go in and out on whether I call it the new man or the new self. Uh, I think in the Bible, the easiest way to translate it really would be new man, but it doesn't mean to exclude women. So sometimes, and I suspect I really didn't check because I don't care that much. There's two words for men in Greek. One is a generic, and it means to include both genders. The other is specifically masculine. It's talking about men and men only. I suspect this is the one It's translated man, but it means mankind, and it really means humankind. So uh, old man, old self, or new man, new self, not synonymous with sin nature and new nature. I think that's the wrong idea. The right idea looks something more like this. The old self is who I am or who I was in Adam. The fact that I was born uh, from human parents, born into this world, flesh and blood, I inherited sin nature from Adam. I'm an old man. But in Christ, I've received a new self in Christ, his righteousness. I'm not one or the other uh, at the same time. I'm only one or the other. So the, what I would explain it this, uh, I'll come back to that. What I would explain is this. As a Christian, I am only ever a new man, though I maintain the capacity to sin because I still possess a sin nature. I'm not an old man. That's impossible. I'm in Christ. I'm always a new man. I don't always look like I'm a new man. I do have a sin nature. It dwells in my flesh. This body is not renewed yet. This body is still in weakness. It's still susceptible to temptation and sin. But I'm a new man. I'm not the old man. So I'm not refereeing between the two. What I need to do is be renewed in my mind and stop, stop acting, stop thinking as if I am the old man. I'm not. That's not who I am. That's who I was. But that's not who I am. I think this is far more consistent with the whole of Scripture's teaching. And even though it is overwhelmingly clear to me, in my own mind, there are good people that do not fully, I think, understand the implications of this. Good people that I agree with on so many other issues, I think they kind of drop the ball on this, on understanding it this way. So what we're going to do, what I want to end with, and then I'll, we're doing good on time, then I want to open it up for some comments and questions. I want to make sure you understand. I'm going to start with something. It's, in some sense, it is, a, it is about as basic as you could possibly get. 
what it means to be a Christian and how you're to think, how to renew your mind, how you need to be thinking as a Christian so that you don't live like you're a sinner. You live like a new person in Christ. He's redeemed you. Uh, if you've never heard it before, maybe it'll be difficult. You know, you're thinking in new categories. If you have heard it before, you may think, uh, I don't know why we have to be so basic. I thought everybody knew this. But on some sense, we don't fully know it because we still sin. I mean, I've been a Christian for 50-some years, about 50 years, a little over 50. I still sin. Every time I sin, I'm not thinking like I need to be thinking. So it looks like this. We're going to start at the very bottom is positional salvation. Uh, the next level is experiential salvation. These are two perspectives in salvation, what it means to be a Christian. Your position in Christ is what God knows to be true. God has placed me in Christ. His righteousness is mine. I am fully, freely, and forever forgiven because I'm in Christ. That's my position. It is untouchable by me, by you, by the devil, by everybody. I mean, John MacArthur, one of his most famous lines, if you like uh, some of what John MacArthur says, he's like, uh, if I could lose my salvation, I would. I mean, if, the, if, if it were up to me, if I could lose it, I would lose it. But it's untouchable because my foundation, my position is in Christ by an act of the grace of God. I'm in Christ. So that's my position. That's God's perspective. He never views me as anything other than in Christ. But in my experience, I know I still sin. I know I don't fully live up to who I am in Christ. There, I still have wrong attitudes. I still will say wrong things. I, I can still be impatient. I could still lose my temper. Lots of ways I can exhibit something less than what God has called me to, how God has called me to live. That's my experience. So my experience is living through, we're in 2023. My experience in 2023 is I still have failings. I still am prone to, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But my position in Christ is still secure. So what I'm to do is I'm to start thinking in in recognition of what my position is in Christ. Now, the two eventually will come to as being one at Christ's second coming. Because at Christ's second coming, uh, we're completely transformed in the, in the twinkling of an eye, whether you're alive, whether you're dead. If you're a Christian, uh, your body is renewed. Uh, it's sown, it, it becomes powerful. It's glorified. Uh, it's incapable of sinning. Right now, I'm still capable of sinning. I still have all these fleshly tendencies. I still have sinful desires. Even though I'm a new man, I still have the sinful desires. And so let's see how this plays out. If anyone is in Christ, she or he is a new self. That's true. I'm a new man. Whether I look like it or not, I'm a new man. But my, the experience is, Paul says, so put off the old self and put on the new self. I mean, you are, if you're a Christian, you are a new person. So live like you're a new person. Recognize that. Start pounding that into your head. Like the most natural thing for a Christian to do is to love Christ with all his, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the most natural thing in the world because that's who you are in Christ. 
I don't always do that because of my sinful desires, but Paul says, I want you to, I want you to start changing that. Let's break it down a little bit further. Go back to Colossians chapter 3. So you're in Ephesians. The book after Ephesians is Philippians. The book after Philippians is Colossians. Go to Colossians chapter 3. <coughs> A very relevant passage because it, Colossians is the book that is most like Ephesians. They are very similar. They actually kind of parallel one another. Uh, they explain one another. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, I want to read. Colossians 3, 9 and 10, Paul says there, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In Colossians, Paul says, You've already done that. You put off the old self, and you put on the new self. And in Ephesians, he says, so put off the old self and put on the new self. And commentators are like, some commentators, their mind is blown. They're like, well, how, I mean, how could both be true? I mean, Colossians says you already did it. Ephesians sounds like you're supposed to do it. And both are true. Both are true. One is my position. If I'm in Christ, I have put off the old self. I have put on the new self, but every day is like a whole new battle. Where I'm to put off the old self and put on the new self. Both are true at the same time. Another way to look at it is Romans chapter 6. So now you're going to go before Ephesians. Before Ephesians, you've got Galatians. Before Galatians, you've got 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And before 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you've got the book of Romans. I want you to go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. This is another very relevant passage because it's talking using the same language to express the same truths. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, he's going to start off by describing, if you're a Christian, this is your position. This is what's already settled. This is not what needs to be done. This is what's already happened in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might, may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, in other words, that's already happened. We've died to sin. How can we still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. All that's true. That's my position. I'm dead to sin. Sin has no power over me. The only reason why I give in to temptation is because I'm so lackadaisical in my thinking. I'm so easy to persuade. I'm so, by however many years I've lived, I've got years of practice of being selfish. And it's hard to think like a new man. So, those first seven verses are my position in Christ. Now, still in Romans 6, look at verse 11. 
In, in the first seven verses, he said, uh, you've died to sin. Uh, you've been crucified with Christ. Now in chapter 6, verse 11, he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And so on it goes. The way I experience life, the way I live life, is to be lived out of what God said has already been accomplished. What is already true. Uh, There's so many many other verses we could... uh, Use for this, I think the next one, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, you don't have to turn there, but we sing this in Good News Club. If I had Good News Club kids and they weren't shy or anything, we'd come up here and we'd start singing, we were, what's the first one? We were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, it says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. It's all done. In Romans chapter 8, it ends with, you're glorified. God looks at me as already glorified. But then on the experiential side, he talks about our salvation being nearer than when I first believed. In 1 Peter, he talks about uh, receiving the salvation of our souls. It's like, Peter, Paul said I was already justified. I was already sanctified. I was already washed. Paul said I'm already glorified. And you're talking about receiving my salvation. Both are true. Positionally, it's all settled. It's all accomplished. When Christ said it's finished on the cross, he didn't mean his part. He meant it's settled positionally in the plan and program of God. But in our experience... We have to live it out. And Paul says, renew your thinking so that as you're living it out, you're living it out of what God said is already true positionally. Uh, Philippians, I know that he which began a good work in me will see it through to its completion. It's not complete from my experience point of view. It is complete from God's point of view. Both are true. Both are true. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 is a great verse, but I don't have time for it. Write that one down. Check it out. Because it talks about your position and your experience. All in just one little verse. He talks about purging out the eleven, purging out the sin, because you're pure. Well, if I'm already pure, why would I need to purge anything out? Because I'm already holy, I'm already righteous, I'm already pure positionally, but in my practice I'm not. So both those concepts are in one verse. Another really great example is John chapter 13 where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And if you know the story, this is kind of the week for the story, but if you know the story, as Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, he comes to Peter and Peter says, Not so, Lord. May it never be. I mean, you're my Lord. You're, you, know, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You're going to wash my feet? And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, you've got no part of me. And Peter says, well then, Lord, not just my feet, but all of me. And then Jesus corrects him again. Those that are already made clean only need their feet washed. 
on one hand, positionally, in Christ, I'm already clean. I'm already justified. I'm already cleansed. I'm forgiven. Fully, freely, forever forgiven. But because in my experience, I still experience the world, I still am tempted, I still sin, I still practice 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because in my experience, I still fail. But I have the confidence that he will continue to wash my feet as I confess my sin because he's already accomplished the work of redemption in Christ. That's probably about as good a spot as any to end. Although I could do the same thing with holy. I am holy, but I'm called to be holy. I could talk about I am forgiven and redeemed, but I'm called to be redeemed and forgiven. Uh, your comments and questions. Eve. Absolutely, absolutely. And the first three chapters, Paul lays the foundation. It's all what God has done. Now he's building on our experience. What does it look like? Yep. I mean, there's some church traditions. Uh, if I were to go back, there's some church traditions that they are all about your position. And how you live, they don't pay a lot of attention to. Other traditions are all about your experience and not about the position. Both are true, but one necessarily comes first. It starts with what God does. And then after that, I'm to live it out in my experience. Somebody else? Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Or somebody like Bob George, who I like, like I give away the book all the time, but Bob George doesn't believe that Christians should practice 1 John 1, 9. Because then we're not living in the forgiveness that Christ has already accomplished on the cross. I think both are true. I am fully and freely forgiven forever, but I'm also to practice 1 John 1, 9. I'm to have my feet washed. Not... I don't get saved all over again. That's Peter like, well, wash my whole body. And Jesus is like, no, you're already clean. I just wash your feet because you walk in the world. You pick up pollution in the world. And that's got to be cleansed. So, you're, yeah, you're right. Uh, both are true. Both are necessary. But like Eve said, one necessarily comes first. One is the foundation, and the second is what we build on. Somebody else? Howard and then Rick. Howard? Well, there, there are certainly some, church, some uh, Christian traditions that believe you can lose your salvation. We went to the Free Methodist Church. They believed you could lose your salvation. Uh, I didn't. We had some interesting discussions. It was a very cordial group. But yeah, there are some groups that believe that. So it's complicated why they believe that. Here's, here's the bad news, or the good news, depending on how you want to take it. Whatever you want to believe about God and Jesus, you can find a Bible verse to support what you want to believe. Everybody can. I don't care what tradition you are. You can find something in the Bible that says, there's my go-to verse, it proves I'm right. And what my pastor taught me, my mentor taught me, you don't go by what the Bible says. You go by what the Bible teaches. 
because everybody can find a verse that says what they want it to say. You've got to go by what it teaches, which means you've got to put it all together and say, looking at the whole picture, what is it teaching? Because any one verse removed from the rest of Scripture, you can come up with every, every stripe of doctrine you want. You can come up with what Mormons, you know, baptize for the dead. Because there's a Bible verse that says, talks about that, refers to that. So they've got a whole doctrine of being baptized for dead people based on a verse. I don't think Scripture teaches that, but they've got a verse for it. There's, there's verses that sound like you can lose your salvation. There's verses that sound like it's impossible to lose your, lose your salvation. What does Scripture teach? You know what? Most of those questions aren't going to be solved on a Sunday morning. It's going to take a lifetime of pilgrimage, of walking and learning and reading Scripture to find out what Scripture teaches. Uh, Rick. Yeah. Yeah. Or the denial of it, like Joe said. Some groups wanted to deny it. I mean, in some very charismatic circles, right? If you, if you uh, because what you say is so important, if you say you've sinned or you say you're sick or you say something, you're like not walking in faith because walking in faith is you just, it's only positive affirmation. So you would never admit to anything because you want to walk in victory. It's what you say that's so important. Rhema. Uh, again, what? Oh, Cindy? Um, so I thought he was cutting me off. I thought Joash was like, let's go. Yeah. Yes. You've forgotten that you were cleansed. You, were for, you forgot that you were cleansed. Yes. If I'm not in God's word, I, I am not renewing my mind. The battle starts in the mind. How you think affects how you live. Uh, that's a point Bob George makes that I do like. Anybody else? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. God, our Father, I thank you for the time that we've been able to spend in your word uh, and reflecting on a certain day in Jesus' life where by his design and in fulfillment.